You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Good morning. Uh, We will be in Exodus chapter 19. If you turn there with me in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 19. And um, if you want to use the e notes, it's the e version Bible app, uh, more, and then events. If you'd like to take notes that way, Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through. Let's read it together. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, And the holy nation, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Heavenly Father, this morning we uh, are ever mindful that you are unchanging. In you there is no change, there is no variation. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when we come to your word, Lord, we know that we are coming to a sure word. We are coming to a living word. And from your word... Lord, we receive life. So, Lord, we pray for open ears. We pray for eyes that see, a mind to comprehend, Lord, a heart to understand and believe, and that you would do a great work, Lord, in your people this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Like most people around the world, you probably, to some degree, have been keeping up with the story of the Thai soccer team harrowing story. They were saved finally out of that cave. Uh, They were in that cave for about two weeks, a little over two weeks. Um, They went in there together, got trapped by a monsoon. Um, No food. They had to drink the murky cave water. Uh, Many of them had infections in their muscles. A couple of them had minor cases of pneumonia. They had incredibly weakened immune systems. They couldn't swim, so they had no hope of saving themselves. And even the possibility of saving them seemed um, all but gone. Yet they were able to finally uh, save those boys and get them out. Even one Thai Navy SEAL, if you heard, he he lost his life trying to help bring the boys out. Um, But currently, those boys are quarantined in a hospital. Their immune systems are so weak, they can't be around other people. So the first time that their parents got to see them, it was pressed against a glass crying. How would you like to finally see your child after that and you can't even touch them or get close to them? It's incredible, isn't it? But on the way out of the hospital, an interviewer grabbed one of the dads and asked for a comment. And here's what the dad said. 
He said, I want to thank, I'd like to say thanks to those who rescued my boy and helped him to have a new life. It's like a rebirth. And that's a powerful way to put it. Because the boys hadn't just been saved from death, which was very likely, from destruction, from disaster. They were saved to a new life. And many years from now, when they get to grow up and hopefully go to college and get married and have children, they can look back and remember the terrible things they were saved from as they experienced the new life they were saved too by the sacrifice of so many. And I think that that often parallels the Christian life for us. We look back and we should and we consider all those things that God saved us from when there was no hope of saving ourselves. We look back at those things that we had no hope of, yet God saved us from the consequences of our sins, saved us from eternal separation from Him. But I wonder if we peer into enough what it means to be saved to God. God hasn't just saved us. He saved us to life in himself. In our passage this morning, Moses is going to open up what it means to be saved to God. So we've been saved to himself. Look back with me, if you would, in chapter 19, verse 3. And it says, The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel... You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So three months out of slavery in Egypt, the people are in the wilderness, and God says, Moses, Moses, you come up the mountain. I'm going to give you a word for the people. Moses, I want you to remind the people of this. And what does God want the people to be mindful of? Well, he says, what I did to the Egyptians. And what did God do to the Egyptians? Well, in short, he economically, spiritually, physically ruined them. Through the plagues, he wiped out their economy. Uh, Many of them succumbed to death through the plagues. And then God, through his might and power, dismantled their false gods. So he he decimated Egypt on behalf of the people. And he said, "I, I bore you up on eagles' wings. It is to say eagles are swift. Eagles are strong. Eagles have a special care for their young to carry them on their back. So God says, like an eagle is swift and fast and strong and cares for its young, that's how I saved you. But I didn't just save you from Egypt. God says, I saved you to myself. So we're pressed then to consider what it means to have been saved to God. Okay, so couple things I want us to see, what it means to be saved to the Lord. First thing, God saved us to himself so that we would, one, become a different people. So that we would become a different people. Verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. In a word, obedience. God is calling the people to enter into a covenant relationship that if they obey his voice, keep all the laws that God will give Moses, then he will be their God and they will be his special treasure, his special people. But here there seems to be, at least for me, an inconsistency. I get stuck. 
I get stuck on the word if. If you do this, then I'll do that. It sounds like, doesn't it, that God's bribing the people. Could God be bribing someone? Is that what's happening here? Isn't that incongruent with the message of grace, mercy, love we read elsewhere in the Bible? Doesn't the New Testament have a lot to say about salvation as a free gift? Is there then a great divide between the God of the Old Testament, who here seems to be making salvation and a relationship with him conditional, while the God of the New Testament offers it freely? No, not at all, not in the least. Recall, God made a promise to the man Abraham. God made a divine promise to Abraham, who was an anonymous polytheistic pagan from Ur, like anybody else. Abraham was an undeserving sinner, yet God placed a promise of divine blessing on him, that God would be Abraham's God and Abraham's descendants' God as an everlasting covenant, we read in Genesis 17. Ever protect them, ever keep them. There's no condition for Abraham to meet. There's no merit for him to obtain. In fact, God chooses Abraham to be unique and special to himself, despite how grossly unworthy Abraham is to have God's love and care. Yet, the blessing of love and care passes from Abraham to Abraham's son Isaac, to Isaac's son Jacob, whom God renames to Israel. And then from the man Israel comes the 12 tribes of Israel, who God threw into slavery so that God could swiftly, strongly, like an eagle loves its own, save them by his own hand, so that they would see, though he did not have to, God freely of his own will chose to love them. He chose to call them his own. So merited. So understand, God isn't bribing the people with a deal. He's blessing them again because he's showing them plainly. The only proper response when having encountered the unmerited love and salvation of God is obedience. Obedience is the only pathway back to loving the God who first loved us. God's saying, hey, I divinely blessed you. I've divinely loved you. Now this is what it looks like to respond to my love. Obey me, or to say it in a different way, become a different people in me than who you were Back in Egypt. So the remembrance of the house of Jacob using that language, what I did in Egypt, God is having Moses say that to the people and us this morning so that we would know and remember the gracious outworking of the love of God in our lives. It looks like obedience to all that God is and to all that God says. If we fast forward to the New Testament, Jesus says the very same thing. In John chapter 14, verse 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then again, John in his first letter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him. So how do I know That I haven't just intellectually, how do I know that I've really experienced the love of God? How do I know that I've experientially known the God who has loved me though I don't deserve it? If, there's that if word again, if we keep his commandments. But John also says something that's of utmost importance for us to consider when we're thinking about the relationship between our loving and obeying God. 
1 John chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. We've established that, but look at this. And his commandments are not burdensome. It isn't just that we respond to the love of God by obeying him. We obey him and like it. I love the obedience itself. There are those things in life we do because we must. There are those things in life we do because from our core, we love them and we desire to do them. God did not give the people the law to oppress them. He gave it to them to show them what life looked like his way, the better way, the different way from who they were back in Egypt. In the law, God says, hey, this is what it looks like to have a relationship with me. This is what it looks like to treat people right. This is what it looks like to take care of poor people. This is what it looks like to take care of sick people. This is what it looks like to take care of strangers. This is what it looks like to love your enemies appropriately. This is what it looks like even to be kind and gentle to animals. Even the law has sacrificed for when the people broke the law. So the law was for those in the Old Testament who understood God's love for them. It was the pathway to love life for God's people. It's why the psalmist can say in Psalm 119, I want to read, it's a little long, but I want to read through it. Psalm 119 verse 129, the psalmist says, your testimonies, they're wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me. Be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears, because people do not keep your law. The psalmist has found the better, different life in obedience to God. One Bible dictionary entry said it like this. Moses declared that the God who redeemed Israel from Egypt and revealed to them his will is Israel's praise. Yahweh, their God, is not a cruel taskmaster who replaced the burdens of Egypt with the burdens of the law. Throughout Deuteronomy, Moses presents the law as a glorious gift. And for one who observes it within the context of the covenant, it is the way to life and blessing. Into the dark world of human sin and alienation, the law of Moses shone like a beacon of glory and grace. In the Torah, Israel's God revealed himself, declared the boundaries of acceptable and unacceptable conduct, and provided a way of forgiveness. No wonder the psalmist could celebrate the life to be found in the Torah or the law with such enthusiasm. Having experienced the unmerited love of God, we love God back by loving to obey Him. It's the only proper response. I want to push it a little further because Moses pushes it further. Look back at verse 5 in Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, in the Old Testament, under the Mosaic Law, there were those who had the actual function and role of being priests. They had to be descendants of Levi. 
Uh, they would take care of the tabernacle, the temple, the place where God's presence dwelled. They would oversee uh, the sacrifices, the offerings that the law required, uh, the different festivals, different patterns of worship. Um, the, the high priest once a year would get to go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the sins of the people and the priest. But what they were to especially do, the priest, were to remain clean, remain in conformity with God's law, know it, keep it, protect it, teach it, administrate it, decide the law in different cases among the people. The priests were to be very near to God through the keeping of the law. So when God puts the title kingdom of priests on the people, it infers through keeping the law, you have a special nearness, you have a special access to God that no other nation has. In other pagan religions, only a select few could go near God. Yet God is saying, my people, they're all priests, through keeping and observing the law, they are close to me. So understand then, priest is the most privileged, intimate term God could have put on his people. That's good news for Old Testament saints. But friends, it's beyond words how marvelous it is for us as New Testament Christians on this side of the cross. The prophet Jeremiah makes a great allusion to it. 31-33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then we see the full, glorious reality of it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As good as the law was, the Israelites couldn't keep it, You and I can't keep it. Why? Because you and I cannot love God perfectly. We don't have the capacity to. Yet there is one who perfectly loved God, so he perfectly obeyed God, thus fulfilling the law in its entirety. Jesus Christ. So it stands true then under the new covenant of Christ's blood. When you and I place faith in Jesus by the Spirit, Christ comes to dwell inside of us. So that both the prophet Jeremiah and the apostle Paul can say, God has written his law not externally on tablets of stone, but internally he's written them on the tablets of our hearts. The very one who fulfilled the law has come to dwell inside us by the Spirit and empower us to lovingly obey all that God says, having given us a new nature. As Paul says, it's Christ being formed within me. So through the great high priest Jesus, we have far more direct and intimate access than any Old Testament saint ever had. Because every moment of every day, you and I are in the presence of the living God because the presence of the living God is always within us, conforming us to the image of Christ. We are a priesthood unto God in ways Old Testament saints never could have even dreamed of. What a reality for us to live in. If it's true... That Christ is in us truly and really. Don't you think that we're going to be different? 
and not a little, but as different as a dead person, as different from a living one? Or is it strangely true for maybe a lot of people inside the walls of the church who claim to be Christian, claim to be in the priesthood of the saints, claim to have the law written on their heart, their life doesn't seem so much different from before they came to know Christ or if they never heard the gospel at all. It was sadly and painfully true for the Israelites. God called them a stiff-necked, a hard-hearted people. And it can be true for us, friends, in the New Testament church as well. I don't like to refer to the passage um, because personally it terrifies me. But I want to refer to it because I think it's very relevant this morning. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Matthew 7, 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what's wrong? Do they not share the gospel enough times? They didn't pray long enough. They didn't have all the right Bible quiz answers. They didn't tithe enough. I don't know. It seems like they did like a lot of really cool stuff for God, doesn't it? But at the end of it all, Jesus said, and it's the exact same Greek word. Jesus said, I never experientially knew you because they never experientially knew Christ. They didn't have within them the only one who had fulfilled the law. So in the eyes of God, they were still a lawless people. The religious activity we can do, oh, how we can do it to gloss over callous hearts that are apart from Christ. Friends, we can pay lip service really easy when our hearts are turned away in apathy from God. What you and I need this morning, and we need it every day, is a fresh revelation of the love of God, what he has done, his son Jesus, that we would love to love God. That's what we need. 17th century Scottish theologian Henry Scougal, he says this in his book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. Forced and artificial religion is commonly heavy and languid, slow. It's like the motion of a weight forced upward. It is cold and spiritless, like the uneasy compliance of a wife married against her will, who carries it dutifully toward the husband whom she does not love out of some sense of virtue or honor. It makes me think about Pinocchio. I have a set of those uh, stop animation, you know, Christmas specials. I love to watch those at Christmas time. We have the Pinocchio edition. You know, he gets away from his dad, and he gets caught up with this puppet master. And the puppet master's smart because he realizes, I can make a buck off Pinocchio because he's a real living marionette. And the people love Pinocchio, and they're praising Pinocchio because he's alive, no strings. But as soon as Pinocchio runs away, the puppet master does what he can to fashion a marionette that looks just like Pinocchio. But as soon as the show starts and he's pulling the strings, the people, boo! Wow! Because they realize immediately it's not real. 
The movements are forced. We can talk a lot about the dangers of being Christians around the world, and we should. Dangers in Asia, dangers in the Middle East. We should pray for our brothers and sisters. But friends, if we're wise and discerning, we will understand the dangers of being a Christian in our own context. And if we're gut level honest, the danger, the great danger of being a Christian in the deep south, the southeastern region of the United States of America, the Bible Belt in the 21st century, is it is so culturally appropriate. You can learn the language, you can learn the rules. You can go to church, you can nod and tip your hat. You can even like it as some virtuous, honorable, culturally appropriate lifestyle. But in your heart of hearts, the question becomes only, do you know Christ? Friends, do we love to love God? Knowing Christ is the only way it happens. We must beg the Spirit to discern us and bring us to a place not of cold, dead religion, but of knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus. Saved to himself. Go back to verse 5 with me. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and, it says, a holy nation. The second reason that God saves us to himself is so that we would look different from all other peoples. That we would look different from all other peoples. It isn't just that we're to be different from who we were, we are, but simultaneously we're supposed to look different from the rest of the world. If the Israelites were truly a kingdom of priests, that means they conformed to the law through loving obedience, they would have looked different from all other nations. If they were clean, if they were holy after the image of God, they would have looked strikingly different from the rest of the world. And in fact, that was God's intention and plan. He wanted his people to look holy and clean like him so all the world would know, hey, Israel, they have the one true God. God's intentions have always been to save the nations from the fall of the man in, in the garden till in Genesis when God gives Abraham the blessing uh, that through him he will bless the nations. God's always wanted the nations to come and to know him. Sadly, uh, the Israelites were not a holy people. And so they did not show the world the holiness and greatness of God. As Stephen recounts in Acts chapter 7 verse 39, Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. And throughout Israel's history in the Old Testament, they constantly and time and time again, they turned away from God. Still yet, God's heart to provide salvation for the nations cannot and will not be thwarted. And we know it's God's heart because God says so through the prophet Isaiah. We know it's God's desire that all would see and hear and believe. Look at in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. He says, it is too light a thing, too light a thing, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserve of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end 
of the earth. Where Israel failed, the Lord Jesus Christ has attained victory. And through us, his church, Jesus is still calling in God's own from every language, tribe, nation, and people. I'm going to read something in 1 Peter. And I want you to notice the two things, okay? The two things Peter says, if you're this different people, these are the two markers of your life. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Here are these words again. A holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may. Here's one. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So one, we're a proclaiming people. Look down at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As Holy Spirit indwelt believers, we're different from the world in the manner and likeness of Christ because, one, we proclaim the gospel of God's unmerited love that saved us. We love to do that. And two, we live holy lives. We have holy conduct that matches the gospel that we preach, that many would come in faith to Jesus. As the saying goes, we've been saved to be sent. We're a sent people as the local church because we alone bear the light of Christ. And we take that light into the darkness of the world. Jesus said it, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the of the earth. On the one hand, you can't give away what you don't have. But on the other, we can be guilty of hoarding the blessing of eternal life. We've been called to freely distribute and give out to any and all as we ourselves freely received it. It was one of the last things that Jesus said, and rightly so, in the Great Commission. See how the Great Commission just matches what God's saying all throughout the Bible, all the way back in Exodus 19. Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make learners, make students, make pupils of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them. Use your words in your life to show them how to live out the life I showed you how to live out. Isn't that how Jesus taught? Jesus used his words. He used his whole life to teach us what the kingdom of God was about. Jesus says, you go in the power of the Spirit, and you do this very same thing. That's our high privilege and responsibility as God's holy people. The question becomes, are we fulfilling it? My birthday is the 4th of July, so I turned 29 a few weeks ago. Here's a good birthday, okay? At the lake with my dad blowing stuff up. At the lake with my dad blowing stuff up. So I was at the lake with my dad, and we made our, you know, yearly trip to some shack on the side of the road, and we're buying fireworks. You know, I got some, he got some, whatever. So I'm walking back to the car. Dad's not coming with me, and I know what's happening. I walk back to the car. I sit down. And I look over. He's still talking to the guy. And about 15 minutes later... He gets in the car. I just shared the gospel with the guy. Yeah, I'm sure you did. My dad loves proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called him out of darkness and 
his marvelous life. Loves to do it. In a good way, it shames me. Because he'll just do it. He'll just do it. And he wouldn't even say, it's like, oh, it's so easy. He's like, I know I'm supposed to. God says do it, so I've got to do it. And he'll ask the same question. It's the same, que- it's the same question my mom asked him when he fell apart in tears and, and came to faith in Christ. Hey, let me ask you a question. This is what he said every time. Let me ask you a question. I know it's a weird question. I know you're not prepared for this question, you know, whatever. But I just want to ask you this. Like, if you, like, if you died right now, like, do you know where, like, what would happen? Like, do you know where you would go? Lead in every time. Why? Because my dad wants to proclaim Christ crucified. He's so good at it. And I appreciate that about my dad beyond words. And I'm thankful for that witness. Friends, if we love to love God, we're going to love to talk about and display the life of Christ in everyday life. And yeah, surely we need forgiveness where we've been silent when we should have spoken. But if we're different, it'll have to come out. It must come out. We must shine. We must, as Paul says, be fervent in prayer for one another, that we have the courage and boldness to be the people God has called us to be in word and also in deed. Save to himself. So we look back, and I want to always look back, and I want you to always look back at who you were. Because who you were and who I was, it's a mess beyond what we realize. You and I are sinners against God. You and I are rebellious against God in ways we can't even understand. You and I had no hope of saving ourselves. You and I had no hope of anyone saving us. Friends, we offended a holy God. And so I always want to look back, and I think it's healthy to do it, and this is something I appreciate Brian says all the time. He said, you've got to preach the gospel to yourself. And I appreciate that because I so often I just get away from the gospel, and I need to constantly, like, I need to look back, like remember who and how often, how unworthy you were. And as soon as I remember what I've been saved from, yeah, I want to dwell in. You should want to dwell in what I've been saved to. I've been saved to Christ to be different. Like, I'm a new cre- creation. There's a new principle. There's a new nature inside of me, and it's given me new loves. And I want to go deeper into this God who didn't have to save me, but he saved me. Like, he showed me life. Like, that should be, like, on your mind, like, every day. Like, I want to know Jesus, and I want to know Jesus so I can be used by Jesus. Like, I want to be effective. It's not wrong to, like, want to work hard and, like, be effective for God. Like, I want to be useful. I don't know if you have a little boy, you might be familiar with Thomas the Train. I love Thomas the Train. But, like, the, the, whole, the theme of the whole show is I've got to be a very useful engine. And, in fact, the, the man who wrote all the Thomas stories, he was a, actually a preacher and a lot of parallels with the Christian life. But at the end of the day, I mean, I want to be useful. For Sir Topham Heck. I want to be useful. And friend, if you're, if you're really different in Christ, you should desire to be used of God in big ways. I want to see God's kingdom come through the power of the local church. There's one more thing. I just want to, I want to give one more thing and, and we'll be done. Yeah, I look back at what God saved me from and I look presently what God saved me to. But if I truly am of the priesthood of saints, if you and I are this holy nation, we do this. We look forward. We look forward because we ultimately know our salvation, it's not about us. 
I'm grateful for my salvation, but my salvation's not about me. It's ultimately about God getting glory for what he alone accomplished in his son Jesus. As Paul says, all things, all things are from God. They go through God and then back to God for his glory. We have been saved to God for the glory of God. We've been saved to God for the glory of God. And we get this really beautiful picture that John gets in this vision in Revelation chapter 5. And it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and opens its seals, for you are slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on earth forever. Let's be different because we look different. We desire to bring God glory now. But friends, we're looking forward to the day till we are fully glorified in our glorified bodies with one another. And for ages and ages as they roll on, we are glorying in and we are glorifying the Father who will, the Son who accomplished, and the Spirit who worked our salvation in us. Not for us, but we could glorify and praise the God of the universe who deserves our adoration forever and ever and ever. That is your and my great grand end if we're filled with the Spirit of God. That's what we're looking forward to is glory, glory. I know I've read like a thousand verses today. I'm sorry. I just had a lot of work through. Uh, but I just want to close with one more, I know. One more verse and then I'll, I'll be done. So if you, if you just look with me at Revelation Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. And what I want you to do is I want you to see, you can see any parallels between what we saw in Exodus 19 and this great, glorious, grand, eternal end in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. God with us. You got two great options. That passage back in Matthew. Of not being known. Christ right now invites you in and says, know me, just know me and have life, life abundant, life everlasting. Let's pray. Father, I wouldn't dare say that we spend near enough time dwelling on, thinking on, 
relishing in. The joy and the freedom and the life that you've given us in your son Jesus. Lord, it's more than words can say. Lord, even the faith to believe we wouldn't have if it wasn't for you. God, you have. You have done a great thing for yourself. You deserve glory. You deserve all praise. So Lord, this morning, the only thing that we could pray is that you would take that word and it would grow deep roots in our hearts, that we would be a changed people. We would look different. We would grow up in Jesus. Lord, not just the brook, but your true church would shine, shine with the light of Christ. Oh, that God, you would receive glory. We're unworthy for the task. We're weak for the task. But Christ in us is strong. Christ in us is strong. So Lord, we pray for conviction. Lord, we pray for just fresh wells of just mercy, that we be renewed in mind and heart. Lord, to know you, to serve you, to make you known, and to bring you the glory due your name. Father, we praise you and we worship you for the great things you've done in your son Jesus. It's in that name that we pray. Amen. Let's uh, stay in a worship together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.